Welcome to the Registered Investment Advisor Podcast, where financial services marketing expert Seth Green interviews experts, executives, and top producers to share can't-miss tips on how they successfully manage their financial service firms, grow their businesses, create great relationships, and influence the industry. And now, here's your host, Seth Green. Welcome to the podcast. This is your host, Seth Green. Today, I've got the good fortune to be with Mary Ellen Tuthill, who's got a groundbreaking and a little bit controversial new book out. Super excited for her to share that with you. Mary Ellen, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. All right. So let's go back in time just a little bit. How did you get in the business in the first place? Well, in 2006, I had uh, been a financial advisor for 13 years. So I was familiar, you know, obviously with the industry, but completely oblivious to what I would be exposed to. In 2006, I decided uh, to quit that career and I I did a financial column for the local paper. So I got a writing job at iMoneyNet, which is uh, the go-to place for all money fund data. And um, all the publications had ancillary articles with the publication. So for 11 years, uh, I wrote about shadow banking in one way or another. Uh, when I got the job initially, it was a very sleepy job. Money market funds were not really exciting. And I thought, oh, well, <laughs> it was a paycheck and I didn't have to worry about commissions. So then uh, the crisis hit and everything changed. I mean, everything was fascinating from then on because money funds played a role, obviously. And I just got obsessed with shadow banking. I just, for 15 years, I just dove deep into articles, papers, you know, the marketing materials from the banks. I was fascinated because, uh, you know, and then in the end, I found, you know, disgusted by it, to be truthful. I mean, it's just a massive monolith that people don't know about and it siphons off trillions of dollars that could be better spent for our common good. So... Absolutely. Well, let's dive into all of that. First of all, I don't want to assume anything. How would you, for our folks watching, listening, um, how do you define what is shadow banking? Well, I'm glad you asked that because I have it highlighted. I'm going to steal the definition from Ellen Brown, who has a great book called Banking on the People. And she describes it as financial intermediaries not subject to regulatory oversight involved in facilitating the creation of credit across the global financial system. It also refers to unregulated activities by regulated institutions. Now, the important point here is unregulated. The entire shadow banking system evolved outside the purview of regulators in the 80s. You know, that speaks volumes. I mean, and part of my book discusses that evolution. But I did want to make one point, uh, an aside that got I was thinking recently. When we say we spent $8 trillion on the forever wars, we as a people can imagine what that money went to, weapons, contractors, et cetera. And we can say, oh, it should have been, you know, redistributed. Shadow banking is opaque. Nobody really understands where the money goes, even though it's the same, you know, amount or more, obviously. But um, I just think it's an analogy and it's something I want to crack open. I want people to see what the mechanics are of it. And, you know, I can't account for all those trillions, but I can account for the special delivery system, which are repurchase agreements that enable all of this to occur. Okay. So let's do that deep dive. Um, Let's expand out that definition a little bit more and kind of talk about 
how that comes into, you know, I know it's, it, it affects our day-to-day life without us even realizing it. Well, I asked my readers at the very beginning to imagine um, the earth encased in fiber optic cables so that when you look at the earth from the moon, it looks like a giant ball of twine. Now, these cables run over our heads and along them run trillions and trillions of transactions, spilling off profits for what I like to call the fortunate few. And we're walking underneath and we have no idea it's happening or to the extent. So for sure. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, repo are short term uh, collateralized loans, overnight loans. And in the 70s and 80s, the Fed used them as a monetary tool. And they were, you know, sort of benign thing. If they wanted to tighten the money supply, they would they would lend out treasuries and take cash in as collateral. If they wanted to loosen it, they lend out cash and have the treasuries as collateral. So, but then the um, the investment institutions globbed onto it and saw it as a way to manipulate their um, trading strategies, so to speak, and used it uh, in massive amounts to make bets on interest rates and that sort of thing. And it really blew up and exploded in the 80s. But nobody knew about it. It was a $200 billion market in 1986, the largest securities market in the world. And no one, you know, today, nobody really knows about it, I think. That's why I wrote the book. (laughs) Well, (laughs) That was going to be my next question was what inspired you to write the book? So you're you're kind of segueing into that right away. Why do you think this is so, you know, people aren't aware of this? Uh, just because of the, uh, well, I'll tell you an anecdote. My neighbor's sister-in-law was an economics professor at a prominent university. I'm standing outside her house and I asked her, what do you think of repo? And she said, What's repo? An economics professor. So, you know, people are not informed about this. I have a very good friend, Mary Fricker, who's, um, we're both little soldiers, I guess. <laughs> she has a website called repowatch.org. It's an award winning website. And I highly recommend people go there because she's very committed. She blames repo for the crisis, you know, the short term uh, unwinding at alarming rates. You know, the money market fund, of course, uh, the reserve that uh, broke the buck and, you know, all of it leads to this security in the sense. And I one thing I want to stress strongly is this book is not me writing. I mean, I'm writing it, but I spent 15 years and I have tons of documents. And what I did to get the book together was pull the most compelling observations, not from me, but from federal officials, even people at the Fed itself commenting on the st- the instability and the the risk um scholars journalists i made a really strong effort to get the most compelling quotes and i think that will engage the reader because every quote i have in there was sifted out from hundreds of quotes and it's, i feel they're very hard hitting and they're very direct so um they support my claim but they're also, I mean, President Biden's nominee for the OCC testified and her, you know, a, a excerpt of that is in there, which she basically said the shadow banking system is completely out of control and, and not functioning. And this is 2022 or whatever, 21. And they were saying the same thing in 1987, the Fed re- meeting at Jackson Hole 
Um, one of the Fed presidents said that the idea of changing the financial structure is alien, and that that people who are in the financial networks, et cetera, refused. And he was causing this, citing this, you know, obviously as a criticism, to step outside and look at what they were doing. And he predicted. Uh, in 1987, what happened in 2008, basically that all of this would, you know, blow up and that the market was heading basically in a bad direction. So it's been a long time. And I I made a big point of getting those kind of quotes. Well, congratulations on doing a very intensive and comprehensive research job. So what did you ask? You, your economics professor friend didn't know uh, what repo meant. Uh, how do you define it? Well, repo is the short-term overnight loans. That's it. It's simple. It's not complicated. And they're just used in the in trillions of dollars. And the loans, the money that's borrowed, are often invested in long-term uh, investments. So there's a maturity mismatch, which is a risk. They're used to hedge, to derivatives, you know, everything you can name under the sun. But repo is the delivery system. You know, the Fed is heavily involved in it right now. But I want to also uh, underscore that I do provide a history in the beginning, too, of how it evolved and how when things cropped up that were problematic, like in 1982, there was a bankruptcy because of repo gone wrong, bad bets. And the papers are very wary in their reporting in the early days. They didn't really understand it. They don't really grapple with it. They just kind of, at one point, the Washington Post calls a dangerous speculative trading Wow, <laughs> that was in 1982. But uh, for the most part, they're tentative. One of the reporters, I think it was a Christian Science Monitor, said that this hiccup could destabilize the $500 billion treasury market, period. So they had to step in and take remedial action. But instead of stepping outside and saying, well, what this is going on and this has the potential to threaten a $500 billion treasury market, they just, you know, put a patch on the tire and just kept going. And then there was another hiccup. And this is really important. Nobody writes about this. In 1982 or 84, I think, uh, Lombard or 82, 82, 82, yeah. Lombard Wall was another firm that went belly up. And this is interesting because the judge in the bankruptcy proceedings decided that repos with their collateral were secured loans. And they should be in the automatic stay of back bankruptcy and be a frozen asset. So this caused a huge hue and a cry because it would end the repo market. You know, nobody could invest in them with the confidence that they wouldn't be stuck. So what happened was Congress stepped in and the IRS and exempted repo collateral from bankruptcy. So the collateral would be free. And it went on like that. And then when long-term capital blew up, they had a problem dismantling it because not all the collateral was exempt, just conservative instruments like uh, CDs and commercial paper. So in 2005, Congress stepped in again and uh, exempted virtually every piece of collateral in every type of trade from the bankruptcy stay. And that had huge implications. And it's rarely, I mean, it's written about by scholars, et cetera, but not in the, um, in the mainstream media at all. And it just basically is the, is the Congress allowing the financial institutions to pick and choose any transaction they want to exempt from bankruptcy. And they can do that in droves. Uh, and, and one of the scholars, Jean Sissico, is very knowledgeable. And she attributed that to, in part to the crisis, you know, that unwinding because there was no, no breaks. 
Okay, so who is doing? You're talking about trillions of dollars of overnight. Bar- who is doing the borrowing? The institutions, the banks, um, largely. Okay, so if I'm ABC Bank, who am I borrowing from? Well, you could borrow from another bank uh, or borrow from the Fed. The Fed's really involved heavily now. But, you know, banks borrow among each other. Money market funds, you know, carry a lot of repurchase agreements. Okay, so is the repurchase, forgive me, is the repurchase agreement, is that Citizens Bank borrowing from M&T Bank and saying, I'll pay you back in 24 hours? Yes, that could be. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so if I have to pay that back in 24 hours, how could I possibly invest that into anything if it's got to be liquid a day from now? Well, that's the question. They just keep rolling it over and hoping that they don't uh, call in the loan. It's that simple. Okay, so I'm citizens. I'm borrowing $10 billion from M&T. Why am I borrowing it? For liquidity in my banking operations. Don't I have the money already from, you know, my fractional reserves on my depositors? No, no. In some cases, they just uh, some companies actually use repo to, to uh, subsidize their their operations, and they're actually doing it with a, a source that can be called any day of the week. Okay, when you say a company is doing this to subsidize corporations, operations, yeah, corporations are heavily involved too. GE went into the repo business heavily. It's throughout the entire network. Okay, so I'm General Electric. I go borrow $10 billion. I tell you I'll pay it back to uh, from Citizens Bank. I tell Citizens, why on earth would I need it for 24 hours? Like, I mean, that if I don't think that way, they just assume it's going to be rolled over. Okay, so I borrow it. I sign a one day contract, but I don't have any intention of paying it back in 24 hours. And the bank, even though they sign the other side of the contract and say, here you go, here's $10 billion for a day. They're not going to enforce it, and they're not going to um, expect me to pay that money back in a day. So if legally on paper, both sides agree it's for a day, um, am I calling Citizens Bank as the CEO of GE every day and going, hey, can you flip that for another day, another day, another oh, day? No, no, can no, I just no, take no, out a year-long no, no. loan or a 10-year no, no, loan? No, it's all automated algorithms. They just roll it over every day. Okay. Does, does someone have to push a button and say, no, we're not paying you back today? No. It's all automated. It's just once they're in, they're in. It okay. just means they it means they have the ability to call the loan on a day of the week. But I'd like, if you don't mind, is that does that answer your question? Well, I have more, but go ahead. Go ahead. You asked me your question. That's okay. Okay. So if I have a first of all, as a much smaller business than General Electric, we have lines of credit, for example, with our bank, but it's not a day-to-day thing. It's Hey, here's there's a term of the loan. You got to make your payments. You don't make your payments. You're in big trouble. Right. Okay. And that's so, the way it used to be before the 1980s, before repo. It was a sensible contract with a you know a tenor of time in which you had to pay it back. But repo allows immediate liquidity and just allows uh, people who borrow, uh, who lend, you know, facile ability to engage in many different um, financial configurations, derivatives, that sort of thing. And and they just, it's accessible. Okay, so if And I, low interest I, rates obviously played a huge role in recent years because they borrowed for practically nothing and then just, you know, invested elsewhere, obviously. Okay, but if I'm a CFO of a big company and I'm doing a repurchase agreement saying it's a one-day loan, 
and just crossing my fingers and praying that everybody's nudge, nudge, wink, wink, and no one's going to call the loan, are the interest rates based on me borrowing for 24 hours or the interest rates based on me borrowing for, let's say, six months or two years? The interest rates are historically low, generally at the Fed's target rate. And people don't think about it not rolling over every day. That's not even in their uh, mentality. They just they just invest. It's something they don't even think about. Okay, so I go borrow $10 billion. I'm signing a contract saying I'm paying it back in 24 hours, but I have the ability to keep rolling over and pushing another 24 hours. But I've decided already that I'm not paying this back in a day. Do I have no, I mean, repo money has been used to uh, for mortgage loans. I mean, people just believe it's never going to be called. You know, it's an unwritten, you know, agreement. Okay, well, well, there's a crisis. Okay, well, let's say all the banks decide tomorrow that they want their that they're getting audited by the FDIC or whatever, and they need their money. What happens? Well, then you'd have a crisis. Okay, you know they'd freeze. I mean, the banks would you know freeze up the money, the liquidity would go, and it would be contagious. Okay, because if I, I mean, if I were borrowing short term money, I wouldn't invest it in something that wasn't liquid that I couldn't get it back right away. God forbid the bank decided they needed their money. If you were borrowing short-term money, yeah, you wouldn't invest in what? Anything long-term. If I know that the bank could call it any well, day, they I know, but like. that's that's true. That's common sense. Right. <laughs> that's common sense, but common sense doesn't rule. I mean, there are there are a lot of examples in the book, and you know, if people want to look into it. We're like the federal home loan uses repo money to issue loans for long-term tenors, and it's just part of the system and in the unwritten rule is the repo will not will turn over every day so if we're playing if they're all playing basically financial musical chairs that's right when does the music stop again it's hard to know you know when like with the federal with the reserve money market fund and lehman you know there was a question about the collateral in one of their repos and uh although i think it was uh commercial paper i'm not sure but that they couldn't you know, fulfill a um, a loan, just one loan. And the entire uh, money market fund, you know, froze up because of the the fear, the contingent. Yeah, I mean, money market funds are supposed to be guaranteed, right. air quotes, to stay at a dollar a share. Correct. Right. It's a very fragile, expansive uh, system that isn't, I, I call the system insane. I mean, it really is. I do. I mean, that's what I call it. Because it is insane. It, it's and it's so complicated and so huge. It's hard to get around it. But how much time do we have left? Because I do want to comment a little bit on the second half of my book. Okay, let's do that. Um, I do talk about just so you know, in layman's language, I try to explain. I'm a literary person, I've got to tell you. So all this is kind of a struggle for me. But I try to explain what a repo is, what the collateral is, and there are risks I won't go into now. We don't have time. But and securities lending, those are like the three pronged uh, elements of shadow banking, securities lending, repo. And um, I just had a brain cramp. Anyhow, so I go into uh, collateral repo securities lending. So I go into what collateral is. And I don't want to bore the reader. You know, I bring up controversy about these things. And I also try to keep it simple and short. And the second half of the book I, is What About Us? That's what it's called. And I draw on really great people um, who have come forward, but they're not reported on. It's repressed and spoken cogently, clearly, and so intelligently about how wrong all this is. And I'm really, you know, 
honor to be able to share them with the reader because I'm so impressed with them. One of them is a fellow named Edward J. Kane. He was an economist and he testified before a Senate committee. And I share elements of that testimony and it's compelling. And it, it really, you know, can instill in the reader the feeling that I am not the crazy one. You know, this is nuts. And another economist from the University of Chicago called Luigi Zingales wrote a paper called Does Finance Benefit Society? And again, it's it's a wonderful paper, no publicity surrounding it whatsoever. But he you know, concludes that over the last 40 years, all of this financialization and financial uh, overtaking of our economy in the finance sector has had no uh, benefit to society, none. And I mean, it's time for people to wake up to this. It's not working. And the trillions that are being siphoned off could be put to so much better use. We don't have high-speed rail. We don't have good school structures, uh, wages, everything. I mean, it infiltrates everything and it, it, it drains. I mean, there's just so much money that's going elsewhere. And then I call the crown jewel of commentary, uh, John Kay, he's an economist out of Britain, and I do want to end this interview with a quote from him. So, Go ahead. Uh, is, uh, do we have much time? Uh, we got time for your quote. Oh, okay, great. Thank you. <laughs> I'll get it right now. <laughs> this really sums it up beautifully, I think. He says, we need to finance, we need a finance sector to manage our payments finance our housing stock, restore our infrastructure, fund our retirement, support new business, but very little of the expertise that exists in the finance industry today relates to the facilitation of these payments. The provision of housing, the management of large construction projects, the needs of the elderly, or the nurturing of small businesses, the process of financial intermediation has become an end in itself. And that really sums it up. Wow. Well, we greatly appreciate your time. We know it's incredibly valuable. For our folks watching and listening, where is the best place for them to go to get the book? Oh, good question. <laughs> you can get it on Amazon.com. Uh, and again, it's Repo Madness, uh, A Simpleton's Guide to the Street's Wicked Ways. And I am the simpleton, just so you know. And... Um, you can also get an ebook, so that's there too. All right. Well, we we again, we greatly appreciate your time. This has been Seth Green with Mary Ellen Tuthill. Go check out Repo Madness on Amazon. Thank you all for watching or listening. We will talk to you or see you next time. Thank you so much, Seth. Our pleasure. Forty nine faces looked to him in triumph. Over the last 12 months, they had each taken turns and promoted his business for a week at a time, driving over nine hundred eighty seven thousand three hundred forty two dollars in revenue. What if you had a network of 50 centers of influence who promoted your business every week for a year? Grab your copy of the number one Amazon best-selling book, The Ultimate Guide to Growing Your Business with a Podcast, at 33% off the Amazon price by going to ultimatepodcastbook.com. Again, that website for 33% off the Amazon price is ultimatepodcastbook.com.